Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of In the Landscape. We're glad you're listening. We're happy to be here in studio. I'm Kate Sadler, and with me is co-host Charles Sadler. Hi, Charles. Hi, how are you? I'm great. (laughs) It's a beautiful day here. The weather's just starting to turn a little cooler in Texas. I'm told there's going to be a cold front, which means... I think like 60s at night, 80s <laughs> during the it's day. It's going to be below 90. <laughs> That's a cold front. <laughs> so endless summer is starting to release its grip here. And, you know, it's refreshing. That change is actually a really nice way of marking time passing, which is a phenomenon that affects all of us, I know. And there is something about the weather not changing rapidly that makes it seem like time is maybe suspended just a little bit. But of course, you know, time marches ever on. Like being a child in the summer where it seems oh, like those 10 weeks of summer vacation or whatever it is, it's like looking back on it, it's not like it was like years long. <laughs> <laughs> so every moment is so full and you're really like present for it. And, and the sights and sounds and smells, I can think of the warm grass and the sunshine mm-hmm. really, I think, allows you to savor every moment in a way. It's maybe a little harder when you're an adult and you have bills to think about and all that stuff going on. And this is all very apropos because today's episode is all about the garden calendar. And -hmm. actually, we're going to think about calendars in a few different expansions of time. So there's early morning when you go out and have your first cup of coffee or tea (laughs) and late evening when those trees become almost inky black against the setting sky. And so (laughs) all the way to the full life cycle of the plants in your garden and thinking about the mature garden and what to do as plants wane and their time in the garden has ended and what to do. It's so funny because of course I think of like a million songs that one could play and time is a key theme in a lot of songs. And of course, podcasting is a medium based in sound and yet we're not (laughs) permitted to play any commercial music on our podcast. So if you feel like maybe we're missing out, we could be playing Vivaldi's Four Seasons or some other (laughs) tunes about time passing. Can't do that here. But what we can do is talk about the gorgeous plants in the landscape and uh, invite you to imagine time passing as we talk through this subject. So Charles, there's a season of sorts that I was unaware of until you mentioned it that is all of two weeks. Can you describe that season and where that concept comes from? Oh, sure. And my love of Japan and that culture, in addition to other Asian cultures, Having worked at a Japanese garden for a period of time, I became aware of the two-week season where there's there's a little more nuance to it, but the gist of it is that, and you can reflect in your own area if this is true, that every two weeks throughout the year, so that'd be like 26 times a year, if you look in nature, in your area, in your garden, there's something special happening. So there are certain seasons where there might be 24 things happening. And so you might have to look more carefully in the dormant season and the winter. It's like a mindfulness and really looking what's happening. Maybe it's a red berry on a shrub that's growing in the wild in the winter. And maybe that is the special activity. Flowering trees, it's, they last for about a week or two, it's, which is about 10 days. And in the Japanese tea house tradition, there'd be a tea house where it'd be a tea ceremony. And there's often... There could be a flower arrangement area, but it's often even humbler, where it's just a very small vase, which would be like the size of your, of your hand, if you cupped water in your hand. And whatever would be particularly special 
a rhododendron or a witch hazel or a maple leaf. And that would be, that branch would, or foliage would be cut and put in that little face and sort of isolated where it's just really celebrating this one special element. This actually reminds me of a part of my own garden history. And I've alluded on the podcast before to the fact that I'm not a landscape professional, but I am a lover of landscapes. I don't think I'd be in this profession with you if I weren't. (laughs) But my background was in classical music. I actually worked at a school on 66th Street in Manhattan, 65th, between 65th and 66th of some world renown um, in the world (laughs) of classical music. And I worked there for a number of years. And if you walk just a few blocks directly east from this school, you find yourself in Central Park and in a really pretty part of Central Park near Tavern on the Green and the Sheep's Meadow. And there's a loop that you can take that if you have a full lunch hour, which we did, <laughs> it takes you across the bridge that, that goes across the lake and kind of up past the ramble and around. And because I was able to get into that amazing landscape, almost every day and in every season, you know, if it was winter, I'd bundle up and get out there and take that walk. You do really get to observe the subtlety of change that you realize Mm -hmm. it's not just this fixed point where all of a sudden the trees are orange. There was this gradual progression of each of the seasons into fall, into winter, snow begins to fall and the lake ices over. And it's a real pleasure to have a landscape that is well known to you, that you can make those bi-weekly observations and if not more frequently (laughs) and really see that this this holds true that it's this gradual change over time then we go from the 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 one extreme of every day or every two weeks observing something special in the landscape to this larger idea of planting and the time that it takes for new plants to get established and there's kind of a rule of thumb there as well Oh, right. That's like an old adage. Well, there's the one, the right plant in the right place. So this is another oldie. <laughs> Sleep, leap, creep. So it holds. Now there's exceptions, but you're talking about shrubs or trees. It's true, depending on the size. And then perennials and other plants. But the first year, the plant appears to be sleeping often. So if you plant like a meadow, let's say that takes about three years to get a meadow for it to be vibrant. And so the first year, my sense is what's happening, the roots are growing. It's not perceptible. Then the second year, it starts to creep. And so you'd start to notice maybe in the spring, it grows whatever that might be, a shrub, a tree, a perennial. In the spring, it's growing and it's maybe exceeding its original size by a little bit. You're like, oh, it's something happening. And so you can imagine that's now two seasons where the roots are really, it's really putting its energy in its roots. And then the third season, it's often perceptible where it might, depending on what it might be, if it was like a small shrub or a perennial, it might double in size in that third year. Or the tree, like we just bought an elm tree here in Texas, in that third year, instead of having, let's say, 12 inches of growth, it might put out 18 inches or, or like three feet of growth where you really, like, well, that's really leaping. It really looks like a leap. <laughs> that's really helpful in a way, I hope, to our listeners, because of course, we pay large sums of money to landscape professionals to design and plant our gardens. And of course, we want our gardens to be looking wonderful 
And they do. Like as soon as the plants are in the ground, you know, it's a change from what was there before, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's a period of latency almost where you may not get bang for <laughs> the considerable buck that you're hoping for. And we really do have to allow a little bit of patience and time for things to start to fill in and for the plants themselves to just get established. Even I think what you might be saying is even if we do go the larger, the slightly larger plant, we might expect that it's primed and ready to do more growth than even it is. Like it may not be a tiny sapling, but it still needs that transition period to get those roots mm. established. Now, sort of coupled with that, there's lots of, for street trees, a lot of resources go into planting street trees around the world. So there's a lot of research on, on the effectiveness. There's an, a landscape architect that I admire, you know, that I keep in touch with some, James Urban or Jim Urban, who's a real, he's a landscape architect, a street tree expert. And so his principle is when you ask how big a tree should we plant, he said his principle is plant the smallest tree that you can get away with. So he gave the example of, let's say it's a big bank in front of in Manhattan. So maybe that's quite a big tree. Now that maybe they have an unlimited budget. So, but to plant the smallest of the big tree category and that the bigger the plant, the longer it takes to get established. Mm. And so there's all different kind of folklore on that. Like every inch of caliper could take a year to establish. And what does caliper refer to for any listeners that might not know? That's the width of the trunk. So if you took your, your fingers and you measured, it's the width. So it's not the diameter. So like, let's say my wrist, if I measured my wrist, so maybe that's like about a two and a half inch caliper or so. Right. And so for those listening who are kind of visualizing the tree trunk as a circle, the caliper is a diameter measure, but it's, I think, uniform at 12 inches above the ground, as opposed to what you would measure at breast height. It's often at breast height. So it's like DBA diameter at breast height oh, okay. is often what's caliper okay. for in the landscape trade. A forester might measure it at the ground. In other trades, you might measure it differently. Great. So for anyone who heard that and thought that there was some um, discrepancy there, there are specific measures. And so for anyone who didn't know, height off the ground at which you measure is important. Correct, right. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of details when it comes to buying and planting trees and maintaining them. Great. So that's our sleep, leap, creep principle. Of course, three years is maybe an average or so. And there's other factors that would go into play. But long story short, it's allowing those roots to get established and understanding that the, that the plant that has been planted is undergoing a process of transplantation. And with, like, with the larger trees, larger shrubs, you have the immediate impact. So that's a question, how valuable is that? And so in some, some situations, it's very valuable. The plants, they may sleep for a lot longer. It might be five years, some very big trees. It might sit there for 10 years and not perceptibly grow. Because it's, let's say it's a 10 inch caliper tree. So it might be, that's that folk to blow. I don't know if it's true or not, but for every inch of the trunk, it might take a year to get to establish. So the, a smaller plant will surpass a bigger plant. And there's a period of time, whether it's, is it five years, seven years? So it's like part of your planning. You could decide how fast you want the impact to be. So we're moving from, years to the concept almost of decades. Plants often live quite a long time. Centuries for trees. And there is certainly a process in nature of succession where um, certain types of 
ecosystems will sort of give over to different plants within that ecosystem right. as things progress in terms of their life cycle. Or like a plant, like a pioneer species. And when there's a fire, let's say in a forest, there's a certain kind of grass that comes in and then maybe it's a softwood tree that arrives and then a pine. And then after 200 years and the oaks arise, let's say. And that brings us to the idea that this same principle happens on a smaller scale in our own landscapes, in our gardens and parks. And having a sense of this maturation and uh, preparing for succession probably will be an episode unto itself because we deal with mature gardens quite a bit. Can you talk sort of generally about what you've observed in gardens as what are some signs that you've reached a stage of succession? You need to be pulling Mm. something out and replacing it with something new. Oh, very good point. Well, one term that's good to know with trees is called retrenchment. So that would be for a person person that's very elderly, their body starts to shut down. It's like a normal process. And so trees will do that. Well, if you look at the what's called the crown, the top of the tree, if limbs are starting to die back and there's no other environmental reason or there's not a, an insect or a, or a blight, it's just if it's a very old tree and it's starting to have limbs, so it's, it's at the end of its life. And now that could go on for decades. So that would be one sign. And that the principle, if a tree is dropping limbs because they're dead, if it occurs, it will keep occurring. So it's not an anomaly. It's, that's really important to realize. Like if it's dropping limbs, it'll keep, that'll, that behavior will continue until there's maybe no limbs left. <laughs> so whether there's people concerned when safety is important, you know, that's something to really be aware of. That's actually kind of interesting because in the forest, if you look at old snags, I guess they're called, oh, right, like, which like are a dead tree. an important part of the ecology of a forest. They shouldn't necessarily be removed unless there may be conditions in which like that's they're appropriate. beneficial because they attract insects, that attracts birds. Mm-hmm. It's like a whole, whole ecological life cycle. <laughs> but they don't have their limbs left. It's not like a tree uh, that just sort of died in place. Uh, good <laughs> they, point. Yeah, they, they adopt this shape that's sort of like the trunk is left over with maybe a few, you know, stumps sticking out. Um, mm-hmm. But they have, they have clearly undergone a process, I think, where they've shed those branches and they're left in a different form. So, it, yeah, that is really good to be aware of because, of course, dropping limbs in a managed landscape like our backyards might not be so desirable. So you may have to make a decision to usher that tree out <laughs> sooner than its right. natural cycle would, would call for. And then, no, shrubs can become tree-like. So there are, well, let's say like a viburnum is a pretty common shrub all over or bayberry or that can get, it can turn into a, into a large shrub or a small tree. So there, are, which would be, let's say 12, 15 feet tall. So if it was planted with the idea that it would be six feet tall, which is often advertised some of these shrubs, when a shrub becomes overgrown, there are some where it could be it could experience renovation pruning, where you're structurally pruning it back in a in a measured, in a systematic way. In other cases, what can be innovative to do is to embrace that it's like the size of a tree, even though it's really a shrub. And some of the, let's say, some of the lower limbs could be removed, and and you could embrace prune it so its form resembles a tree. And then there could be succession planting. Maybe there are shrubs or perennials that are planted underneath it. Great. So again, that may be a topic rich for a whole other episode, but we'll go ahead and take our progression of time and scale it back again to the 
what is probably the most commonly thought of time <laughs> measure for the garden, which would be the four seasons or the 12 months of the year. And I think we, we discussed when we were planning this episode that what would be more effective would be to talk in terms of the four seasons, early spring, late spring, because as you observed, the, the seasons are somewhat consistent. Yes, as you move toward the equator, things even out a little bit, but temperatures get hotter winters are shorter or non-existent to a certain extent, but there still is a way to say if you are in a region that experiences frost at all, even if it comes later, you can still think in terms of, oh, now we've hit the frost date. Here's what we need to, to think about. Yeah, good point that the four seasons are pretty applicable. If you're in temperate where you have a cold winter or subtropics or here we are like the southern US where it's, it still gets cold and then the tropics, it really doesn't which are very close to the equator. There's really almost no modulation. It might be a rainy season and a non-rainy season. So take what you can apply to your own landscape. Always feel free to give us some feedback if you have it about ways that we might do an episode specific to you and your region, if that would be of interest. And we'll get to ways to follow us and communicate with us at the end of this. But let's dive right into it. So there are a couple of considerations. The first is design. And in this case, we mean what to plant. So Mm -hmm. for those of you who like the planting episodes, this is it. And then we'll follow up a little bit with care considerations. And this is actually quite honestly something that is asked of us professionally from our firm as much as many other services, I won't say more than, but this concept of, you know, have five different contractors coming to the property, the irrigation, the folks who plant the annual baskets, or, or perhaps this is you doing it yourself, the various prunings and plantings. So how do we coordinate across a calendar, all of these different, whether it's people doing the functions or the functions themselves, if it's you. Oh, yeah, that's a great point. I mean, on some properties, we'll have, I've been the lead on some larger properties. And so I often say, we need to understand who's doing what. And that everybody might think, oh, you know, I love this property. I'm going to fertilize. <laughs> and you have, you know, there's some cases where you do a soil test and it's, the, it's like off the charts with the fertilizer and that three different groups are fertilizing. Oh, or it could be the reverse where everyone thinks, oh, that person is going to do this. There's like a, a limb down. So having like coordination and think like discernment and people that are there every week, whether it's a public or private space, and there's, let's say, a, a limb down that's not, that's not too large, that's perfect. Pick it up when you're there weekly. If there's a tree that needs removing, maybe that's another service. And the weekly, and so I love it when the weekly care people notify me. Say, so remember that big planting you did, that one part of the property? That one shrub is not looking too good. I think it's getting overwatered or underwatered, and then I can jump into action. <laughs> yeah, as we observed sort of at the top of the episode, it's so exciting to be able to be in a landscape so frequently that you can observe those changes, and it's just not reasonable that even the homeowner is there out in the landscape as much as our weekly care people. And so the fact that they can be your eyes on the ground, and if they're attuned to this idea of observation that they can that they can really help out and make it a functioning system. And even like walking the property with the weekly care people if they're, you know, it could be snow removal, cutting the lawn, trimming other things, and really troubleshooting and saying, you know, we're planning to to put some planting here. Is this where you, is where the snow is plowed? And they'd say, oh yeah, that's the only spot I can put snow. And I'd say, well then that's not a plant. That's not a delicate plant. 
or with a lawn mowing, plants get larger with, with time. And to say, you know, is this causing you a problem? And they might say, oh, that's such a headache. Every time I cut the lawn, I've got to bring in the small mower to get around this. And sometimes it's just edging the bed a little larger or, or cutting off several limbs where it still maintains like the integrity of the design, but it's also reasonable to maintain. It should always be reasonable to maintain. Yes, excellent. So let's get into planting. What are we thinking about when we are planting for the four seasons? We've talked about this in other episodes, and we're here to try to help with some concrete ideas. Well, see, jumping into spring, if you happen to live in a part of the world where there are woodlands, you have what's called woodland ephemerals. And so what's fun about that is when you have a deciduous forest, so a forest that has no leaves in the early spring, there are special plants that come up that forest condition is sunny for that brief period of time. It's warm enough. So like in the, you know, it probably goes all throughout the East Coast. I'm familiar with it in the Northeast called trout lily. So it's imagine like a bright goldish yellow flower, like a lily, but very small. You know, it's, it would fit in the palm of your hand. And then the, the foliage, it's like a long, like banana shaped foliage. And it has spots on it, like, like a trout. And so that comes up You'd be hiking in the woods and there'll be a whole, like a valley beside a river, like a whole slope of that, thousands of small yellow flowers. Spotting them is really special. I mean, if any of our listeners are into like landscape in the sense of going out and hiking in the landscape, I mean, I think we've seen little, it's almost like orchids that look like slippers. Oh, right. Uh, Lady slippers. Lady slippers. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) The one with three leaves that... Trillium, no. Oh, right. Yeah. That's very special. And then a Pope something. John, the there's somebody. Who, uh, Jack in the pulpit. Jack in the pulpit. That's <laughs> it. That's another special one. <laughs> <laughs> so get it, it's almost like a little akin to birding where it's like, the, you, you know, you go out with this enthusiasm and you see what you can spot in the forest and it's, right. it's a very special experience. So you could have that in your own garden, which is. Right. Exciting. Many of these are cultivated. There's Asian Jack in the pulpits. I mean, there's, of course, native to North America. Yeah, so it's very special. Many of these are cultivated or there's, of course, you don't want to collect something from a wild area. Leave only your footprints, take <laughs> only your memories. That's our, <laughs> remember from our So the spring parks. ephemerals, all the different types of bulbs. And there's all mm. different times within the spring, a, a, like a very long range. And if you're tuning up. in for the first time, welcome. And go back one episode and you'll hear our listener question episode. We actually talk a little bit about bulbs and when to get them in the ground. So you'll be seeing them come up in the spring, but they will have had to have been planted. Right. (laughs) Take some more advanced planting. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So there's a whole multitude of, uh, depending where you are in the world, of like even in the desert, the the, uh, winter blooms are are spectacular. So there's like a rainy period and uh, let's see. Then the early foliage of many of the spring plants, when the hosta leaves first open up, it almost looks like a, like, like a whistle, this vertical shape coming out of the ground. Then it unfurls. The oak leaf hydrangea, that's particularly, you know, the, some of these leaves, the architecture when it's opening, it's so incredible. It's so articulate. And then there are evergreen perennials. So there are ground covers. There are evergreen ornamental grasses. There's Heliobores, which is a, it's a broad evergreen leaf, and it has it's there's a Christmas rose and a Lenten rose are some of the common names, which could bloom in the winter or in the spring. A, a perennial intensive garden, 
where they die back in the winter, it can be a little bleak in the spring. So there can be a long, depending on where you are, and be months where there's not a lot to look at and it's just dirt or, or soil. So really thinking carefully. So there could be structural plants, evergreen shrubs, evergreen trees. Maybe there's a, a backdrop of an evergreen hedge. And so let's say you have a backdrop of an evergreen hedge and then there are, there are bulbs coming up in front of that. And there's an evergreen ground cover. There's not a period of time where, where there's a noticeable low point. A good design, you can avoid a low point where it's, there's times where it's particularly showy, but it's always, there's always a moderate level of interest. Great. I'm picturing it. It sounds lovely. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and then you have, so the spring, you know, throughout many landscapes, there's a high point of flowers. So you have flowering shrubs, all the woodland type, the, the laurels, the mountain, the mountain laurels, other laurels, rhododendrons, azaleas. Then you have the spring flowering trees. Gorgeous. Those are so special. In Washington, D.C., the Cherry Blossom Festival. There's one in Brooklyn. There's one in Portland, Oregon. And I love having a sense of that, that special two-week season because it really, it's so fleeting. And, you know, if you can catch it at its peak, it kind of like our fall foliage episode, like the calendars that help you plan when to be in a place for this peak experience. I can only imagine if you're in Japan what that must be like. Yeah, it's highly celebrated in Japan or people often leave the people live in cities, people leave the city and there's parks on, their, on the outskirts of the city where you have a picnic. You know, there's just thousands of people picnicking under the cherry blossoms. And there are maps for all that too. It's like the national parks here in the United States will document the uh, tidal basin in Washington, D.C., Brooklyn Botanic Garden. So you've addressed one of the challenging parts of spring, which is early spring, which in some cultures is like mud season. <laughs> oh, right. Like if you're in New England. <laughs> yeah. So you have the solution, sort of the evergreens, the bulbs. That's really wonderful. Maybe late spring is almost like the easy season for most of us. There's, mm-hmm. a, you know, it's just this proliferation of blossoms and, and that's kind of taken for granted. So as we move into summer, what are some of your suggestions? Because that wanes and it, it can almost give you a sense of loss. And of course, we want to celebrate each of the seasons so they don't feel quite so. As we experience time passing, we embrace it as opposed to feeling that sort of the sad side of time passing. Oh, right. So things that, I mean, maybe plants that age gracefully. You know, there are some that are very spectacular and then they're not appealing at all. They, they, only, they sort of melt before your eyes. So having, in some cases, like a very traditional planting, you'd have a spring bulb that would come up and then another foliage. And then as that's waning and those fat foliage is turning yellow, then you have in the summer foliage that covers that up, which could be a daylily or a coneflower or an ornamental grass. And, and so that's really true for the summer too. You know, there are early summer plants. There's quite a few that flower early summer. In some climates, the heat of summer, that's a hard time where so long flowering like a plant with the popularity of native plants, the cone flower, which echinacea, the herb, that comes in many colors. And there are plants of which are more or less from, from the Midwestern plains. Plants of that ilk flower a long time, weeks and weeks and weeks, even months. Uh, and so having long blooming perennials, there's what's called a matrix planting, which there's a Dutch wave of planting design in England, Germany, which utilize that more or less, where you have in a perennial garden, 
more or less ornamental grasses are the are the matrix. So that's it's maybe 30, 40% of those. And then you have perennials coming up through that. And the matrix could be something other than a grass. So other summer planting ideas that we should have in mind. We talked about long flowering perennials. There are foliage plants too. Some of the like variegated plants I'm fond of. And so there's variegated wigilia. There's even variegated dogwood trees. There are uh, perennials that have a, a color like a like a golden grass all year. So having plants. Or what about that purple smoke bush that's almost iridescent? Oh, right. That's it's a favorite. For, yeah. <laughs> and that's like a like that's a light catcher, I like to call it, where you plant it. So the setting sun is it's planted toward the west. So it's as the sun's setting, you're seeing the color through it. Now, one thing that I will mention as we start to mature ourselves as podcasters, we do have a website page that covers a lot of it, it will contain the show notes for the podcast, as well as links to our social media pages and an ability to email us and connect with us. We're also going to start to have, we have episode one ready to post. We're going to have transcripts of our episodes. So if you or someone you know would benefit from reading along All or right. re- rereading in order to go back over a tip or something maybe you missed in the first go round, we'll make transcripts available. So Please check the show notes for this show. We will update them on our website, kinggardeninc.com and forward slash in dash the dash landscape. So that's the way to get to our podcast page in particular. And uh, what we'll try to do is we'll try to include the scientific names for many, many of the species that we have here. Because if you go to a nursery in your location and you use one of the common terms that maybe we've used on the show. It's just a shorthand for us to kind of discuss the gardens quickly, mm-hmm. but we are sensitive to the fact that you may not be able to find what we're talking about if we haven't included the scientific name. Right. And <laughs> <laughs> many of our horticultural list listeners or nursery people will not appreciate if we don't make that available to our <laughs> listeners. Right. So we certainly will. We are sensitive to that. Sorry to interrupt. Of course, we're talking about variegated foliage in the summer landscape. Right. So like long interest, something that really, I guess I have high standards. So if a plant's going to go in the landscape, it has to work hard. So it should, does it look good when there's no leaves or in the winter? In the summer, it might look great in the summer, but there's often a plant, maybe there's an alternative that looks great in the winter and the summer. So foliage is really important that even just green foliage an articulated leaf like the sassafras, where the leaf looks almost like a mitten. So that could be very exciting. But we even had in our northern garden in New York State, what I would have thought of as a southern plant. Was it an agave or a yucca? Oh, right. That was a yucca. Oh, yeah. And it had green and yellow foliage. And it was very architectural. Of course, it's almost like a pincushion of foliage. Right. I think it's called together. like Adam's Needle, maybe the common name. I'm not sure. Right. Of course, the variegation or the difference in color, the yellow really stood out in low light. That was fantastic. And even in the winter, it was just hardy enough that it could kind of hang in there. And so when the snow fell on it, it was beautiful, kind of poking up out of the snow. So even our southern, our southern foliage actually contains quite a bit of interest. If it's, if it's hardy enough to exist in your zone, maybe even outside of the southern latitudes, maybe give it a try because you've got that real architectural interest. Right. It's really fun. And that, that plant can work in planters, depending on the climate. 
So let's see, I guess for every season, I have in my notes here, the structure of evergreen shrubs is really important. And the structure of the trees too. And the trees could be a deciduous tree. That term is commonly used, the bones of the garden. So it's the structure when all the perennials are cut back, when there's nothing flowering. Maybe it's in December or February, where even at, at its lowest ebb, maybe the structure of, of the clipped shrubs is very pretty. And then the architecture of a flowering tree. We don't want to give fall short shrift, but we did do a whole episode on fall foliage and some options for the landscape. Did you have anything to add to that? Susan? Well, you know, there's, there's by visiting special nurseries, botanic gardens, college campuses, there are often less common blooming trees too. Like a, like a summer, there's a stewardia tree that blooms in the summer. There's a smoke bush. There's many choices. So the more readily available nurseries, like the big box stores, let's call them, they might not have as deep an inventory. And so to really, so the plants there might look good for two weeks and that might be it for the whole year. <laughs> and there's always alternatives. So that, that low point in the, in the dog days of summer, there, there are trees that, that like that and they might be flowering then. So let's see, we could jump into autumn. So things are starting to turn, starting to change colors often. So in some of the flowering shrubs, the hydrain, the large uh, woody hydrangeas like the paniculata, limelight, and and others, those are starting to get that dusty pink on the, uh, the flowers. They're turning from white to pink. The ornamental grasses are starting to change color. The, so there's some of the perennials from the summer that may have more or less died. And so some of those, this, the architectural structure of the seed heads can be quite beautiful still and have ecological interests. It could be seeds for the, for the birds. There are late blooming perennials, so like the asters and goldenrod. And I one trick with some of those late blooming perennials that get quite tall, an old technique is around July 4th, is to cut, cut their height in half. So if at July 4th, if it's three feet tall, cut it to a foot and a half. And then at, let's say it'll bloom in like September or so. Instead of being leggy, it'll be bushier then. It'll still flower the same amount, but it'll, it's, it won't flop over. <laughs> there are, are less for the fall. There's less common. There's heptacodium, which is a flowering shrub or small tree, which is very special. It gets this pinkish. Maybe it starts out white and then it turns pink. Which is very, in the bark is this exfoliating, very, it's almost white. Now there are unusual plants which would flower. The sourwood that's oxidendron, that's a popular one, that flowers in the summer. And then in the fall, what's really fun is that those white, it's like a cream colored flower is still hanging there. And then the tree turns different shades of orange and red. And the, and the cream flowers are ground covers, ornamental trees. There's all the traditional trees for fall color. And I guess maybe underutilized would be some of the lower, like the fragrant sumac, the different ground covers. Yes. Go back and listen to Falling for Foliage, and we cover quite a number of these. So we don't want to, again, shortchange any of the seasons, but take a listen to that. And hopefully you can get some ideas for alternatives to the big traditional leafy trees. Right. So then now we're jumping into winter. So some of the grass, ornamental grasses and the perennials that have gone dormant, those, plenty of them, like little blue stem grasses, which is a native, well, it's definitely in the Northeast. I think it's much of the East. That's going to, it stands upright, even with snow on it. It's incredible. Some of these grasses and perennials, they will retain, you know, their structure. 
and it and it's it's interesting. So instead of having them cut down when they appear to be dead and insects lay their eggs on them, there's all types of ecological benefits for leaving those till this to, to cut back in the spring. So the the exfoliating bark uh, shrubs and trees. So Stewardia, Cusa dogwood. There are many uh, paper bark maple, many trees where they've lost their leaves, and so the bark is now is multiple colors. So it's like a mottled or almost like a camouflage pattern on many of these, and so that's like a real special. In the summer, it's more subtle, but as as everything else recedes, then a tree like that really can stand out. There's a monkey puzzle tree you mentioned. That's a you know very architectural evergreen. So then coming into winter, there's, there's winter blooming plants. So there's a type of a heliobore, which is a low evergreen perennial that will bloom from sometime between December and March. There are winter blooming shrubs. There's winter hazel, which is, has, it's the color of butter almost. And it's quite a large sort of sprawling, it's habit, it's almost like a forsythia where it's long arching branches and there's some curves and so that's particularly dramatic to have this butter-colored shrub. And there's a pointillism to it, too. It's quite a small flower. And there's witch hazel. There's witch hazels native to North America, native to Asia, and those come in different shades of yellows and oranges and reds. There are all the different types of berry shrubs. The, there's the deciduous hollies, winterberry holly, which is really like a showstopper. In the southern U.S., there are similar hollies, which... The holly will lose its foliage, and then the red berries remain, which is really striking. And then there are also evergreen hollies, correct? Right, and those are also lovely, you know, that rich green foliage. There's the calicarpa, which is a, a beauty berry is one of its names, and that has a purple. So the purple berries coupled with the red berries is, a, is really striking. And also like another design feature is that having trees that may shade your, your residence on the east and the west side, deciduous trees that will lose their leaves, that's very beneficial. So it can allow the sunlight in in the winter. And then again, sort of finishing out winter would be, again, evergreen shrubs and trees for structure, like in key spots. Maybe it frames a view or it, it obscures or screens something. Or it's like particularly in places that you spend a lot of time. Maybe you walk to and from every day having evergreen plants there is important. So there's, in the winter, it doesn't have a bleakness to it. We talked quite a bit about timing of pruning in our Back to Basics pruning episode. And uh, we've covered some topics like bulbs and what, uh, when to plant those. What are some key care concepts and the timings of them? I'm thinking specifically perennials and lawn, potentially. Oh, right. Well, let's see, spring is like a maybe just jumping into spring cleanup. So cutting back those perennials that were there. Lawn, I mean, there's fertilization that can be done for lawn in the spring. Really, the, the seeding of the lawn, the best time for that is really like late summer, where depending on where you are in the late summer, a dew starts to form in the morning, you'll notice. And so that's, if you're in the Northeast, it's around like the middle of August. It's still hot, but it cools off at night and there's dew. And so there's like that residual moisture. So that's a great time to seed your lawn. The warm season weeds are not as active then, but the turf grasses are. So in the spring, cutting back ornamental grasses, the different perennials, in some cases, you can even use a lawnmower to do that, where 
I've done that myself, and I've seen that's more and more popular, just on the highest setting. If you have, like, depending on the scale and exactly what it is. And then you just leave those clippings right on the bed where you're cutting back the coneflower, some of the smaller ornamental grasses. So the spring you could fertilize if it's needed. Plants could be uh, transplanting and dividing could be done. If, let's say, you have a bed of irises and they're very dense, they're not flowering, that could be dug up and then replanted. Early spring, if the trees have not pushed out leisure, you can still do some pruning. Maybe there's fruit trees or crab apple. And so spring could be a time for that, early spring. And then if there's irrigation for the plantings in spring, eventually that gets turned on, it gets assessed. Okay, let's see, summer. So any pruning things can be tidied up if they need to be. Late summer, the lawn can be aerated and seeded. And so that encourages, sort of regenerates the lawn. Perennials can be divided and replanted. Or you can give away to your friends if you have too many. <laughs> um, meadows can be can be planted or seeded, really sort of like in the middle toward the end of the summer. Okay, so let's see. Autumn, I guess now is in a way it's a time to enjoy the garden, that it's a lot of the work's been done. There'd be leaf pickup, and the leaves could be mounded around some of the shrubs to provide winter insulation. There could be really light pruning done in the early autumn if it's needed. And then let's see, jumping into winter, deciduous trees can be pruned. So trees that lose their leaves, uh, winter is a great time to prune them. Evergreens, trees is possible to prune too. Orchards can be pruned. And then planning for the next season, ordering of plants and design too, really thinking, are there areas of the garden that don't work? Are there programs that aren't being met? Maybe there's a place to gather is, is required or enlarging a dining area or removing an overgrown plant. Great. So speaking of time, that's about all the time we have for this episode. And we really thank you for sharing your time with us and listening today. We hope we gave you some ideas for your landscape. And uh, certainly if you have questions, you can always reach out to us. I'll just mention again that we have a website now that kind of holds all of our relevant information. So kinggardeninc.com forward slash in dash the dash landscape. And we look forward to connecting with you there. Feel free to let us know if you have any questions that maybe we didn't cover in this episode. Of course, last episode was all about listener questions. So we're really excited to get those and be able to respond in show format. Also, we'll have some episodes coming up. We liked our back to basics pruning episode. And so we're going to look for other back to basics topics that we can share. If you're more new to the garden, then this would be helpful for you, or maybe reinforce some things you already know about your own landscape practice. We're also going to be looking at some garden cities, places that we've been to around the globe. We're looking to do Chicago to start. Uh, Then we may take a look at Paris and Hong Kong and share with you the landscapes that we've seen and what we loved about them. So Mm -hmm. uh, stay tuned for our episodes. Of course, in between those kinds of series-like episodes. We'll always have single topic episodes where we try to cover something of interest in the landscape. Anything else to add today? I think that covers it. All right. So (laughs) we hope you get out and enjoy that slow progression of time that the landscape invites us to observe. And uh, we look forward to next episode and hope you listen then. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.